What a chapter. My gosh. There's death in this chapter. There's killing in this chapter. There's shadows in this chapter. There's healing in this chapter. There's the growth of the church in this chapter, as well as uh, a pretty serious form of excommunication. Um, scripture, uh, for those of you who haven't spent much time, it is not boring. Uh, there is plenty in this that certainly can put you to sleep, like reading Leviticus. But there is plenty in Scripture that is an incredible piece of literature. In and of itself alone, just for reading Scripture, the literature aspect of it, the value of the, of the, and the worth of the writing is a beautiful thing. And we've taken a snapshot of something that's called, for our purposes, the book of Acts. It's called, in other places, Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts of the church. Its intended purpose is always important to think about when we take time to read it and try to understand what to take from it. As any scripture, for someone to be a student of the word, for someone to be open to learning what your spirit can reconcile with the Holy Spirit that moves through this word, it's always important to try to take a little bit of time to understand the context of where it comes from. There are people who spend their entire lives studying the sources of Scripture, the criticism in Scripture, the layers of Scripture, the languages of Scripture. Our very own former Senior Pastor Isaac Canales, with his Ph.D., spent years studying the depths of Scripture. You will never, and there has never been, anyone who has mastered this book. Nobody. Nobody except the Creator Himself. And that's because it's complex. That's because it's written by many, many individuals it's compiled in a certain way and been blessed in a particular way to be a source of instruction, correction, and inspiration for each and every one of us. I apologize for getting preachy already, but I just appreciate the fact that we take time to read an entire chapter in this evening. But yeah, think about this, and let's, let's just stay connected a little bit more to the purpose of Acts. We have to remember that these words were written in an attempt to tell the story about the beginnings of the church that we are connected to intimately. But the church that we are connected to so intimately, and I mean Mission Ebenezer Family Church, but I also mean the Christian church of the 21st century around the planet, is incredibly different from the church that existed at the time of this writing. In many ways, it's very similar. But in so many ways, it's so much more complex. Not because God has changed, but because our world has changed, because the church has in many ways developed and matured. God has done things within the church that are different today than they were in the day of Acts. And if you think that I might be off, 
I'd like you to read some of the Old Testament and see the way the people of God treated some of the dynamics in which God motivated, encouraged, challenged, and how they've changed from when Christ entered the world and how they continue to be something that we as people who want to be intelligent, thoughtful, and compassionate about the way we live out our faith are sensitive to the dynamics within the text. So we read at the end of chapter 4 unique pieces that were in that chapter about this said church. It began with the difference between the high society aristocrats and the people. And there was a discrepancy between those two. And just like today, back at the beginning of the church, there was significant discrepancy between people who had means, money, and people who didn't. There was significant discrepancy between people who were whole-bodied and people who were disabled. There was incredible discrepancy between people who had intelligence and knowledge and those who were, say, common or had common sense or might be considered laborers or blue-collar. That was within chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, we saw what had happened in the story of describing what happened in the new church. In the new church, all of those discrepancies were intensely challenged, not by politics, not by lobbyists, not by militias, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the love of God that came into the men and women who had intimate connections to the presence of Jesus Christ through the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. It changed radical dynamics in which people came and shared everything that they owned amongst each other, that there would be no longer needy within their midst. People who would separate themselves based on their level in society. They would live in their own mansions. They would live in their own temples. They would live in their own spas. Those people in the beginnings of the new church came and hung out with the commoners, the ones who had dirt under their toenails and their fingernails, the ones who didn't have the benefit of bathing every day, or eating three meals a day. In the new church, what changed radically is they all hung out together. The real intelligent ones, the ones who studied all their life, and those who had simple common sense, lived together. That is so important to hold on to when we think about the beginnings of the church and it's throughout the New Testament. And it's how we live today. In this church, we have always historically had a mixture of old and young. And I'm getting a lot closer to older than younger these days. We've also had an incredible mixture of people with incredible means. People who would drive down Palos Verdes Drive East 
to come and worship here in Carson. People with PhDs and postdoctorates who would come and sit with individuals who never had an opportunity to go to high school. That happens here on a regular basis and has throughout the time of the life of Mission Ebenezer Family Church. And so it is reflected throughout the entire Christian church of the 21st century. Now, sure, we know that churches often reflect the community in which they're housed. But I'm not going to get into church growth and church politics and church colors. I'm just saying here, refreshingly, we have a nice diversity. And I think it reflects the church of these days. The end of chapter four, Barnabas, this man Barnabas is highlighted for some reason. Everybody was supposed to do it, right? Everybody was supposed to sell their belongings and bring them to the church. That's what we're told in scripture. Barnabas sold the field. For some reason, he was called out as being pretty substantial. Sold this field and brought the proceeds and the gift to the church to be distributed across the board. Right? Again, the new church having an opportunity to establish themselves in a very complex world with incredible differences. And if you think about it, that's pretty radical. If you sell your possessions and you bring them to be distributed to those who didn't have it, so everybody would be equal. Barnabas is highlighted in chapter four. What a radical shift. What in the heck? is going on with the opening of chapter 5. We have a married couple. A married couple that apparently are a part of this new church. And something pretty radical happens to them. Ananias and Sapphira. They sell their belongings. And somehow, they make a decision to work together and somehow Ananias says, look at that, Pastor Josh, pretty nice, huh? Ananias talks with his wife and comes up with this plan. Now, there's probably a lot of ways to spin the story. And I'm not going to try to spin the one that may have happened between the two of them. All I know is I'm married to a woman who would never let me talk her into doing something that would be against what she felt God had intended. Now, I hope that if you're married or planning on it, that you would be able to appreciate as well an independent thinker, someone who isn't codependent enough just to go along with what you say, or vice versa, that I wouldn't be so codependent and without maturity enough to be able to know that I need to make a decision on my own two feet about my walk with God. But that's enough for my attempt at marital counseling. Ananias and Sapphira needed more than marital counseling. They got into something that drastically changed their lives. Now, we don't know the dynamics between these two individuals and what marriage was like and how much uh, Sapphira had an ability to speak out against her husband's plan. All we know 
is that they had a plan. I'm not sure how easy it is for you to um, to fit this into your world, right? Quite frankly, it's a fairly unusual, thankfully, event that took place in the church that had an intense motivation behind it. We read about miracles that took place last chapter. And one of the things that I pointed out that was something that I appreciated was that we need to understand miracles for what they are, especially in the context of this gospel right here in the text of Acts. Because you're at the beginnings of a new church, there were there was a necessity for the power of God to come and heal those were, that were broken. Because at that time, anybody who had an illness was so separated from the rest of the community. And if there's anything that we understand about the new life of the church was the importance of the relationality that existed between that church. And it's why I talked earlier about the blessings that we can share with one another because so much of the church is based on relationality. It's how we grow together. It's how we rub each other. It's rub each other in a way that helps us to be better. I got to be careful when I say things like that. It's how we uh, motivate one another and encourage one another and challenge one another. And so people were healed in attempt to show that somebody who was disabled or had an illness or was unable to get from one spot to the other could be healed and reconnected to the community, rejoined amongst the fellowship. There's a place called Kalapapa on the island of Molokai, northern shore of that island. And what happened was that that place became a colony for lepers, People who had a particular disease that we've read about in the New Testament, anytime they walked down the street, you know the story, they had to yell out and everybody scattered. And we can think about what it would be like, and maybe you felt like that, that there's something about the way that you walk into a room or you walk into a situation with your family and everybody goes quiet or everybody leaves the room. Well, these people lived that reality in a very real way. And Kalapapa was a place, a colony that was connected, and they would drop them off, take them on a ship, drop them off, throw them in the ocean. They would have to swim to shore, and when they got there, they met fellowship. There was a priest there named Father Damien who served his life making sure that these men and women who were ostracized and with a disease that was highly communicable had fellowship in the church, lived and thrived there. Healings happened because of the relational dynamic of the church. Here's a miracle. Here's a miracle that took place that had a lot to do with making sure that the dynamic in that church, which was to bring all things together, so all would have and be able to share would not be messed with. We know in Acts that Satan was a vicious, vicious predator, ready 
to be able to do anything Satan could do to disband what was beginning to emerge as the new church. And here we have a story in which Satan was able to manipulate Ananias and Sapphira to come and to lie to God's people. And when they said, did you bring everything you had? They said, yes. Ananias was actually there by himself. And when he said it, he got called out and he dropped dead. They came and picked up and took his body away. Sapphira came in, and this is where it gets weird, right? You have the church, and this woman walks in. Her husband just dropped dead. Do they say anything compassionate to her? Do they say anything to try to comfort her? Do they give her any opportunity to feel the love of the new Christian church? Oddly, no. They go right to the point. Did you bring everything? Uh, can you give her credit for being loyal? She's stuck by her man. We brought everything. She dropped dead. Now, I know you, if you're like me, you've kind of wished you had the power of that miracle and could call call God to sick on somebody and they drop dead and get out of your life? This story is something that I think is important to think about, right? Because we all have those people who come around and they say, man, how could your loving God have a miracle that takes out a husband and wife who gave some of their money to the church and just so happened to hang on to some of it? I mean, isn't that prudent? Isn't there good stewardship about that? Maybe they had a family problem they had to make sure they had to take care of. Who knows, right? We don't know the story, but we know that there are people who will take this and even ourselves will struggle with what to do with a story like that. And so I think we have to remember to keep it in the context of knowing that there were stories that occurred and just occasionally, there's some in the Old Testament that talk about somebody who did something wrong and the miracle was a punishment like no other. Do we have the ability to figure it all out? No, but there is an ability to understand how important it is at the beginning of a new movement to know that when Satan gets involved, that has to be carved out. And this is a story about carving it out not letting it fester, not letting it come up and stir up controversy. Now, we have church controversy all the time. Do we hear about people dropping dead? Probably not as much as we would want to. So it's not just church controversy that's the problem. We have to keep it in the context of when this story was told. But I think it helps us if I can step out a little bit and maybe read a little bit of personal assessment. What do we do with trade-offs in life? How do we face the trade-offs that we have to deal with all the time? 
what motivates our ability to choose one thing over the other. It is so important for us to realize that as human beings, we lived a life that always had the tendency to motivate us to facilitate a trade-off in life. What we chose here over here was very misinformed, often misinformed, very troublesome, incredibly selfish, very confused. As new believers, we have the incredible gift to face trade-offs in life and choices that we make between this and that to be as close to the Spirit of God as possible. Now, being human, we still need to take the time to prayerfully consider the choices we make. It is so essential to know what's behind our trade-offs. I was thinking about this idea of trade-offs, and there's, there's this concept of sacred trade-offs. There's this concept of what happens when people get over, overtly religious and overly religious, and they often will make a statement or a decision about something that comes from that high religiosity and does not take into consideration the pliability of the Holy Spirit within each and every one of us, of the necessity to be sensitive to the individuals involved with the type of trade-offs that we're talking about. We can think that we would choose one family member over another because they may be more like us, they may be more faithful to God that we see or feel, and therefore we say, we're going to be more attentive to this family member than that family member, and that's a trade-off. There might be some unnecessary and unfortunate fake holiness that causes to choose something like that. And it may be important for us to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to be able to know that there is always a check on our human ego to make sure that our choices in life are in alignment with the compassionate love that we have received in life, that we teach and preach about here through the life of Jesus. It might be easy to take the Ananias and Sapphira approach. It's harder often to take that approach where you can't just carve somebody out. That's real hard stuff. I remember working for a CEO at a health center, and, um, you know, CEOs have a pretty important role in a hospital. In this particular hospital, they were going through some difficult things. There was a, a strike that was happening, and the union was involved, and Anytime that kind of dynamic happens, you know that that can get ugly. And it was a long, ugly process of voting and 
checking people's IDs and all kinds of messiness. And the, the CEO came in after all that was done and brought us all together and wanted to, um, wanted to like say, you guys did the right thing. I'm proud of you. You go up there with your heads high. Don't worry about what anybody says to your face or behind your back. And, you know, I was sitting there and I, I, I was feeling like tension, like, you know, this is messy. You can't just make everybody right and others wrong. This is messy. And I got up and I said something because there was a window to say it. And I knew that right after I said it, I wasn't a very smart guy. And I actually, without going into a lot of details, I got a lot of, in a lot of trouble with this CEO. This CEO told my boss, who was her peer, to not let me speak at anything else. She did not like me getting up in front and contradicting her. Now, she was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. She was someone who built hospitals in war zones. So she knew what she was doing. I learned a hard lesson. I learned that I shouldn't put my foot in my mouth in front of the CEO. And that it's a good idea sometimes to toe the line. I tell this story because I, right when I was in the thick of things, the announcement came out that she was leaving and going to another hospital system. And I felt like my sacred presence was being vindicated by the Holy Spirit and that now I was a free man. And the truth of the matter was, is I was still a knucklehead and shouldn't have opened my mouth in that place and time. And I had to learn my lesson. And I did learn my lesson. But the temptation was there. The, the temptation was to be high and mighty. And God vindicated me. No, we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with that. The church's foundation is on love and sacrifice. The church's foundation is on advocacy for peace. And we hear that at the end of the chapter with the Pharisee who came up in the presence of where the chapter goes in. And I apologize, we didn't even get there, but the church grows. The, 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 the disciples get in trouble. They get in prison. The, they, they get set free by some miraculous intervention. Again, I told you, chapter five's got so many incredible images. But yeah, all of this happens. They're, they're, they're jailed, they're set free, they're preaching in the, in, the, in, the, in the open air. People are flocking to the Lord. They're challenged once again. We're going to kill them, said the, the higher-ups, because of what was happening. And it took a Pharisee to come up and say, look, let it be. Let it be. If it's not of God, it's going to go away. They'll fizzle out. And if it's of God, why are you going to fight against God anyway? The point of it is, right, the spirit of this church, the spirit of Jesus Christ is on a foundation of love and sacrifice and peace. And that is what we should live for. And quite frankly, it's a lot harder than getting on your mighty righteous pants on and thinking that you can walk around and dictate what's right and what's wrong and your righteousness may indeed be like filthy rags. We just need to be careful and grateful and learn from the church that started it all and be discerning and diligent about knowing what God wants of us 
in this day, in this age, in this messy world that we live in. And we'll be okay. The church is continuing no matter what. We want to just be in the best relationship possible with it. Amen.